Welcome to FRT, episode 81. I'm Brad Carr of the IF in Washington, and my guest today is across the country in Southern California. Catherine Parry is the founder and CEO of DeepView, a firm that Catherine founded in 2015 in London, focused initially on social media compliance, although as her business has grown, she's also broadened that scope through other areas of security, which we'll discuss here. Artificial intelligence is an important part of that repertoire. Some of you may recall hearing Catherine speak on the AI in Society panel that we had during the IAF annual membership meeting in Washington a year ago. Catherine's also recognised as a young global leader within the World Economic Forum. Much as I've got to say, that WEF in Davos back in January now seems a very, very long time ago. But Catherine, let's look ahead today. Thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you, Brad. Great to be here. Let's kick off and, and talk a little bit about your business at DeepView. I mentioned, obviously, social media compliance, a big focus, but not all that you focus on. Can you tell us a bit about the major activities and growth areas for the business? Yeah, absolutely. So DeepView is focused on securing communications. We secure social media and digital channel communications. What do I mean by that? Uh, channels like WhatsApp, WeChat, Telegram, LinkedIn, and so on. Um, our technology works on both public and, if authenticated, private too. So we are an employee privacy-focused platform. So we'll work with an organization, say a bank. They say to their employees, do any of you want to use any of these platforms to speak to your clients? Many of them will or will be doing so already. Um, and at that point, the recording is set up. But it's important, it's always based on the employee defining what should be recorded. So that's our main product. So it's a fascinating area, and I really want to delve into a number of these aspects further with you. But let's start firstly on the, the social media security side. And uh, when we were talking recently, you showed me through some really fascinating cases of how hackers might uncover the clues that they need via your social media profile, your social media sharing, things like Instagram photos. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about that. So this has been one of those spaces that has been a very interesting learning curve for us. And it started in 2014 when beginning to look at the business as a, whether it was an interesting or even viable business. And what kept coming up is so many of the solutions that we look at in the security space were excellent at text, incredible at looking through the dark web and also the open web for text language. However, the technology to look at photos and videos was incredibly nascent. And the ability to define what a risky, and when I say risky, I'll define that in a moment, but I mean a photo that has got a computer screen on it or a passport in it or a credit card in it. That technology was um, really non-existent from what we could see. And so the reason that was such a problem is social engineers and hackers looking at these photos and using them to enter organizations. Um, many people in the security world will talk about social engineering actually being one of the most prevalent ways of gaining access to an organization. And that usually happens through inadvertent data leakage. So an employee accidentally um, somehow an email they've sent has got out publicly or something similar. In the case of photos and videos, you can imagine taking a photo of your workstation and putting that on the public internet, say Instagram, provides a lot of information for a social engineer to then use to gain access. 
Um, one social engineer who speaks about this, she's become a white hat um, hacker. So she's, uh, she's on the side of industry, um, is a lady called Rachel Toback. And she actually talks about using these photos to gain entry into the organizations. Catherine, you used the term social engineering there. I was wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit as to what you mean by that term in this context. So in this context, social engineering is really like the art of manipulating or influencing, deceiving information to gain control into an organization. In this particular instance of security, a social engineer will look at a password on a post-it note and pull that out. Maybe there's another photo on someone's Instagram account of a kid's birthday cake. So they now know the, the hacker or social engineer now knows the date of the kid's birthday. And it's gaining all this information to then hack or infiltrate an organization. It's a really interesting space. And I noticed actually some of the comments you put on uh, on LinkedIn recently, you picked up the example of where uh, the former Australian Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, had uh, posted a photograph of his boarding pass when he was traveling recently, I believe, to take up a, a trade commissioner role in the UK. And, and I believe that sort of provoked or, or enabled the door for some hacker to get in and be able to steal some of his personal information. For sure. And actually, this is something that we're seeing more and more of. As of today, there are 14 million 700,000 posts sitting on Instagram with the hashtag work from home. Now, what's going to be in a hashtag work from home? Likely a trading terminal, likely often we see very cute photos of people with their children, kind of future trader in the making or whoever it might be. And as the scenario with Tony Abbott showed, the information in these photos and videos can be used in all situations to gain access into an individual or an organization's security. And so what we've actually built to address this problem is um, an internal algorithm. It's proprietary tech. It's really exciting that reads a photo or a video for either a computer screen or terminal or a notebook or a password on post-it notes. So that's one of the things we're teaching, inspirational quote on post-it note versus password on post-it note. <laughs> that's the kind of information that as a bank, you want to know whether your employees accidentally put it on their Instagram or their LinkedIn page. You certainly made me think about uh, what I have in the background for all of the different webinars that we've done through the course of this year. Of course, uh, the photo of that image that might come up on a ticket or a pass can be used for good as well as for evil. Um, there was one case I noted where a nurse working in COVID wards around the clock uh, returned at the end of a shift to find that she'd received a parking ticket. And when she posted this online on Twitter complaining about the scenario, a good Samaritan quickly found that he was actually able to access from the, the barcode or QR code on the photo of the ticket and actually paid the ticket for her. Um, but, uh, I, but I fear it's much more nefarious purposes that this gets mined for more, more commonly. Um, as you look across the industry, thinking of financial services in particular, how mature or sophisticated do you think the industry is in its, in its approach to social media security and using social media data? I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. I think hackers or social engineers um, are usually focused on a single task i.e. to hack an organization, right? And so their ability to spend time on that project is magnified versus the resource often an organization will have to defend and keep the walls up if, um, if you can think of a sort of almost imagining the barricade is up, right? 
And so I think that's the, the most difficult component that we're looking at is the fact that it's unpredictable to know how an external bad hat may try and gain organizational entry and meeting uh, or trying to manage the inadvertent data leakage significantly reduces that external threat. Another core part of your business is using AI to help record and archive chat messaging from across different devices and channels. And you mentioned the use of of some of the messaging apps um, as we kicked off. I think this is a really important piece in terms of compliance and conduct risk and things like surveillance, managing for collusion and manipulation, insider trading and the like. But I guess this has become even more important this year. And when you talk about the the work from home environment, presumably this with more remote working, we're seeing a greater proliferation of the different home devices that people are using. I don't know whether it's changing behaviours in terms of the preferred channels of, of chat messaging, but I, I you know, is that is that how you're seeing it? This is, is suddenly a uh, expanding and adapting field. Yes, it's been very interesting to see how work from home has changed the landscape of communication. Um, WhatsApp use increased forty percent in the first few weeks of lockdown. Um, primarily, I I believe um, from the people we speak with, clients and friends, and and so on. Um, WhatsApp is just a, it's, it's easier to use than text. It has greater functionality. Um, as an example, you can share location more easily, for example, than you can on text and similar things like that. And what seems to be happening with the work from home is people are relying on more and more efficient communications because the technology at your fingertips is so critical to your communication. Whereas before you might be sitting in a room, it was, it was a different way of communicating and operating and doing business. An individual sitting at their home station has got their corporate phone. They've probably got their personal phone because there's no one in compliance overseeing their shoulder and saying, your personal phone should not be on your desk. They might have their personal iPad and their computer and their work work computer station, all in a relatively kind of close proximity. And so the transferring of a conversation um, from one channel to another channel, so say from email to WhatsApp or from email to LinkedIn messaging, is is a very simple transition today. And I think that's what we're now looking at. And we have to keep up with the pace of that change in behavior. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We look at it a little bit like email came in. So social media is to email what email was to fax. So If you think about it, five emails was standard within a bank in the early generation of emails, and everyone would just use those five emails. Now we're beginning to see one bank will have five WhatsApp phone numbers that clients can use, which is not fit for purpose. We're seeing a much higher demand from clients wanting to have their own WhatsApp chat with the person, the banker that they relate to directly. That brings in more revenue for the bank. So as a result, we are seeing banks take up our recording solution to make sure that they are compliant using these chat channels. And I think if we can talk a little bit about that, the point you make there about the recording solution you have, and I think probably as much as anything, also the archive and the searching capabilities you have with that. Because one of the things I find striking when you talk about work from home and people adapting their styles of working and the devices and so on, I mean, I think of perhaps there'd be people I'm sure when they're juggling the homeschooling and the like as well at the same time, people I'm sure are switching between devices frequently. They have their workstation set up in their home office, but they have their iPad that they might carry around when they're trying to do something else in the house and watch a webinar at the same time or or whatever. 
if you were trying to put together all of the recording of the different chats that are instigated on different patterns, on different channels, on different devices, to be an incredibly laborious data set to be assembling. I guess a core part of what you've found as a, as a niche and opportunity is about how you bring that together and then make that searchable or, or how you can mine that data. Is that right? Yes, in part. Um, exactly. So it does slightly depend on the platform. So for example, WhatsApp is allocated to a phone number. So you can have it on, say, a mobile phone, and then you also have the web enable capability on a desktop, whereas LinkedIn is much easier to access from multiple different mm. uh, devices. So, yeah, the way, um, the way we work is specific to the platform. But ultimately, we are a single platform that means that a bank can say, right, we've got some of our team in America on WhatsApp and LinkedIn, Europe all over WhatsApp also using Telegram, and some of our teams on WeChat in Asia, and we need to record those conversations. We very easily can um, set up, it actually um, takes literally 24 hours if we set it up uh, remotely. We also have the mobile app ability to set it up through some of the um, internal mobile apps that are already on the corporate devices. At that point, the relevant channels on the relevant communication platforms can then be selected and set up for recording. So that's the archiving component. In terms of the data leakage component, we're able to then start looking at the photos and videos that are exfiltrating the organization, usually unintentionally leaking confidential information that's so critical. That's where our technology is used to provide real-time alerts. So any photo or video that does get shared with any confidential information in it, it can be removed and taken down. You mentioned WhatsApp, and uh, and as you rightly say, it's it's become a, an increasingly vital tool in some areas of investment banking, for instance. There was a really interesting case last month with Morgan Stanley staff using WhatsApp. Um, nothing illegal, I believe, but a, a breach of the bank's policy where a couple of traders were uh, subsequently left the firm as a result. I know you follow this case with some interest. I was wondering if there are particular learnings or upshots that you see coming from that one. So I think what was interesting with this particular case um, was because we've seen cases of people being fired for using WhatsApp. It's prevalent. Um, it happened with JP Morgan at the beginning of the year and other banks previous to that. However, what was interesting about this one was the press reaction in the FT where the writer wrote, how can any firm who offers a keen insight on today's most critical issues not allow WhatsApp? And I think they may have a point. Um, I think it is now becoming a platform of such wide use that the need to manage it is becoming more and more prevalent. And really, I, that's where we've now got to focus is making it usable now. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, ethics and artificial intelligence more broadly with you. Um, I mentioned at the outset that you spoke on this subject last year at our annual membership meeting, and you made a great point in that discussion about algorithms and bias. And indeed, we've probably seen this issue uh, ramp up again as, as or really come to the fore in a lot of other IOF discussions and DC FinTech Week over the last two months about the issues of bias and discrimination with, with algorithms. And you gave the example of where, for instance, an algorithm might see a, a man in a white coat as a doctor and it might see a woman in a white coat as a beautician, perhaps because that's what the people designing the algorithm have been disposed to think. 
Um, it's, it's a great point. It's, it obviously resonates in terms of the discrimination element and risk. But it also makes me think of a, a point, uh, and I know I've referenced this on previous FRT episodes, where Kathy Besant of Bank of America has talked about how we learn to drive. And it concerns her when she sees a room of developers working on autonomous cars that would all appear to have grown up in, in cities. Whereas you know, she grew up in Michigan learning that if you see a deer on the road, on the ice, you don't swerve around it. Uh, and the need for that diversity of, of life experience uh, amongst the developers, as well as you know, diversity uh, across other dimensions. I, I thought this was a really great point and a really uh, evocative e- example that you gave in our annual meeting a year ago. I was just wondering, you know, your thoughts reflecting on that and, and are we getting better at this or are we at least getting more conscious of this, of the need to have diversity amongst the people doing the coding? Ah, uh, it's a good question. I believe we're more conscious of it because it seems to be a much more prevalent topic and far more widely discussed thanks to forums like yours. Whether it's changing the field is probably yet to be seen. I think the difficulty is we see fewer people going through the education. I think that's really changing. There's some incredible groups like Girls Who Code and so on that is just increasing the diversity of individuals going into machine learning. And I think that's really the fundamental base of it all. So I think it's about education today and then making sure that we're training and hiring in accordance with balance today and in the future. And I think if we consider bias and discrimination from another lens, there is the risk of biased algorithms like we've, we've just discussed, but there's also the risk of the fact that the algorithm may be developed or trained on a biased data set or data that accurately re- represents historical outcomes that are discriminatory. Uh, in our annual meeting recently, we had a great example um, mentioned by Tracy Frey of, of Google about how the outcomes for African-Americans in this country over 200 years have been obviously very unfortunate to read the result of discrimination on many levels, on many, uh, many different specific examples over the years. And now that all of that is baked into the history set, that some would say that artificial intelligence brings a risk of embedding all of that history and ensuring that it becomes permanent um, and removing human judgments. Whereas others perhaps see the opportunity of the technology to give us a reset, perhaps to break away from the discriminations that have unfortunately occurred from, from human judgment. I was wondering if you have a view or how you see some of those risks and opportunities. It's a really good question. And coming to the US in the last six months and seeing firsthand the horrific scenarios that have and, and behavior and that's happened makes this question particularly prevalent. I'm an optimist, so I always believe that there's no point dwelling on the negative and pessimism perspective, instead trying to see how we can use these scenarios as opportunities. Again, it's really about training. So when the models are being trained, we are ensuring very clearly that there is no bias here. It can be a really challenging piece, particularly in financial services. Last year on FRT, when we had the IEF Machine Learning Roundtable in Frankfurt, we heard from Fahad Ahmad from, from Nedbank in South Africa, and he made the point that pretty much any dimension that they could model on all in some ways had a legacy of apartheid, whether it was the historic restrictions on where someone could live with the old Bantu stands, whether it was in terms of education level being a factor of, of the opportunities available. We see 
a lot of discussion in the banking industry about not only things like credit and, and things with pricing and availability of the facility, but also how we try and combat financial crime. And there are some activities in, in combating terrorism financing where an algorithm may do something that with one set of eyes might be very useful and another set of eyes might be sounding a little bit like racial profiling. So it's a, it's a difficult issue, I think, that we need to recognise and it's good that the industry is conscious of this and, as you say, education and, and consciousness of the issue is, is something that at least gives us an opportunity to hopefully harness more of the upside of this technology and not fall into to some of the risks and the downsides. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. And I think you're spot on there. Of Many of these technologies are used as information and information is gathered by historical events. And so naturally, it then leads to natural biases. But I think if those training the models are mindful, if those using the algorithms are aware and particularly careful that we are not predefining future scenarios by using past mistakes, then we've got some hope for our future. And obviously having the sufficiently robust risk controls overseeing that, which I think ties back in with a lot of what you're trying to to help with in mitigating some of the, the conduct risk. Catherine, the other aspect I wanted to talk about is, is what's next for you? Uh, and as you mentioned, you you moved to the US, to, to California, right in the middle of the pandemic, which was a very brave move in itself. Um, but interested in how you found that and how you found with your, your growing business in an environment that I think makes your services all the more valuable. What's next for, for Catherine and what's next for Deepview? Yeah. So as you say it, who would move during a pandemic? Surely that is the most bonkers thing to say. So I moved, thankfully, just before the pandemic. Um, uh, I came over for a conference in February before it was before things were um, bad here, and then of course we saw lockdown in March. So it was it was it, as you say, Brad. It's been a full on few months, um, but a really um, actually a really exciting time for us as a company because what we believed would be the way forward with communications has really just been accelerated with the current scenario. Um, So excitingly, we've just hit on a new piece of technology that helps prevent photos from being sent. Um, So it's more of a preventative measure. When I say prevent photos being sent, it provides you an alert if there's a passport or credit card or computer screen or password in your photo or video and so um, we're really chuffed with that technology and that's um, that's had quite an appetite from the uh, external industry so we and from our clients and so on so we're going to be focused on rolling that out and I think that's really for me right now that is absolutely everything um, we are working hard on is making sure that we're looking after our customers and supporting them through this through this difficult time. Absolutely. And I think that's a really exciting innovation you mentioned there and one that I think will have immense value um, both to firms and I would think also to, to individual consumers. So we, we look forward to a wider rollout of that. Catherine, thanks for joining us. It's been a great discussion. And I'm just going to quickly recap on a couple of the things you mentioned that I thought really stood out. You know, I was struck right at the outset, you talked a bit about how some of the, if I can call them legacy solutions, were, were excellent at text, but less so at photos. And as we look at what this year has done, your observation that this, uh, I couldn't believe the number, 14 million and 700,000 posts on Instagram with work from home as a, a specific tag on that photo, it creates, uh, I guess, very easily you can conceptualise the, the vastness of the, the data set that the hackers are able to work with. As you mentioned that uh, where work from home has changed the landscape and that WhatsApp's use has increased by 
which is interesting because you would imagine that, that WhatsApp's value would have been prevalent to a lot of its existing user base already, but obviously that's expanded in that awareness. And, and as you point out, that it's easier to use than text and that people are relying increasingly on what are the, the easier communication channels. I really like the point you made that, that social media is to email what email was to fax. Fax already seeming like such a very, very distant memory, although it's probably not that long ago but the rapidness of that transition and, and how that transition has been accelerated this year. The criticality of messaging systems like WhatsApp, um, in particular lines of business, I'm sure. The way that you made the point that you need those kind of applications in order to be able to support clients. And I think thereby you underline very much the criticality of the services and the protections and the controls that enable technology to be supported so that it can work in a, in a way that is both compliant, safe and secure. And, uh, and supporting good conduct. Catherine, it's been great talking with you and uh, thanks very much for joining us on FRT. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Head on FRT, a few things I want to quickly highlight. Uh, next up, we're going to speak with Anton Ruddenclaw from KPMG's Innovation Practice in London on the outlook for the platform economy and the environment for fintech in 2021. We're also going to debrief the IF Machine Learning Model Governance Survey, probably pick up some of the points we've been talking about here, um, some of the techniques and governance controls, particularly within a bank's risk and data management functions, to guard against some of the risks we've talked about, like bias. Uh, but a great survey of 66 firms from around the world, and indeed the intersections of responsibilities between risk and data management or in that. And we're also going to talk about anti-money laundering and financial crime with Adrian De La Casa, our former colleague who's now back home at UniCredit. Please join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.